And I'm just going to say it's my privilege and pleasure to bring the sermon today uh, for reasons of having a wonderful footnote to Howard's Acts series. I'll speak about Acts 242D that refers to being continually devoted to the prayers in the plural. And then I'll tie that to verse 46, which is about the early messianic followers of Yeshua spending time at the temple and where were they and what were they doing? And so again, my privilege and pleasure to give the sermon today and not the least of which reasons is to give our congregational leader and main sermonator an extra measure of Shabbat Shalom on this Thanksgiving weekend. And so this sermon is all about inculcating the robust Jewish tradition of healthy, holistic biblical prayer into the fabric of our being as an essential practice of what we know to be the way of the Lord, which is now in Messiah Yeshua. And this sermon will have a particular emphasis on the mainstay prayer of the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests. And that prayer is namely called the disciples prayer, often called the Lord's prayer, but most correctly called the disciples prayer. And so, of course, there's two main types of healthy, holistic biblical prayer. The structured prayers, sometimes called liturgical, that we've already richly participated in this morning in the Shabbat service, and will continue after the sermon. And of course, that's part of our daily life and they're pre-constructed oral or written prayers, thoroughly grounded in the scriptures. And then of course, we have spontaneous prayers of all types, spur of the moment constructed, oral or written. And so let's look at our two uh, verses for a second. And that is Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves this is the NAB translation for a specific reason. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and notice this, and to the communal life. Lest we misunderstand fellowship, devotion to the communal life, God called a people. And then to the breaking of bread and finally, and to the prayers. And I've highlighted six translations here at the minimum that do translate it faithfully as the prayers. And then Acts 2.46 says, same translation, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple area and to breaking bread in their homes. They ate their meals with exultation and sincerity of heart. And I would encourage you all to read Acts 2 as part of your Shabbat afternoon to remind yourself that the context of this passage has to do with 3,000 brand new Jews who came to know Messiah in a single day. And these are the habits that they were devoting themselves to with all those who were already in Messiah. So it turns out that the favorite meeting place, and you can follow along with the slide deck, that's why I gave it to you, of the early followers of Yeshua the Messiah was the temple, specifically at the Eastern edge of the outer court called Solomon's Colonnade, or sometimes you see it porch. And I gave you some verses in Luke and Acts and even Yohanan or John. Uh, if you email me, I'll send you a copy of the slide deck and you can look up all these verses. But this is where you find the documentation that this is exactly what was taking place. So there, in typical Jewish fashion, they carried on their discussions and offered praise to God. And then I take this from Richard Longenecker 
And you can email me if you need to know why he said it both ways. But look at this. As Jews who were Messiah followers and Messiah followers who were Jews, they not only considered Jerusalem to be their city, but continued to regard the temple as their sanctuary and the Mosaic law as their law. They thought of themselves as the faithful remnant within Israel, those for whom all the institutions and customs of the nation existed. And I just had this little illustration that I found. It's not the best resolution, but you can see that they, they were here in Solomon's porch, and that's on the eastern side, and that's the Golden Gate. It used to be Ha-Rachamim, uh, the Mercy Gate, and notice it's the opposite side of the temple as the renowned Western Wall. So as the faithful remnant, they're refocused eschatological, that's end times, hopes. See, for example, Malachi 3.1, and all of their desires to influence their own people, their fellow Jews, were associated with the city of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple, and the Mosaic law. And I ask you to see here, especially Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Isaiah 52, 7, Jeremiah 31, 33. You can see all the way to 34 there. And Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. So the social, historical, and if we have to use the word theological reality, is that the early Jewish community of the followers of Yeshua Messiah were manifesting the new covenant expression of their God-given worldview and way of life. And as such, they were referred to as the way. It's the way of the Lord, so they were called the way in Messiah. And you see that in Acts 9 and 18 and 19 and 22 and 24. And I gave you the specific verses there. Among other things then, the early Jewish community of the followers of Yeshua Messiah was characterized by a robust daily prayer life. Listen to this. They were, in fact, the new covenant, new creation, all in foretaste, kingdom of priests or royal priesthood. See, for example, 1 Peter 2, 9 and compare 19, 6 of Exodus, which we'll see momentarily. And their mainstay, thrice daily, that is three times a day prayer, was the disciples' prayer. And again, my dialogue partner there was Richard Longenecker. And then notice that Keener says that the disciples must have heard in Yeshua's teaching of the disciples' prayer, an exhortation to seek first God's coming kingdom in Matthew 4, 17 and 6:33, by praying for it to come down forever. And usually when I'm giving uh, teaching on this passage in a live setting, I pretend there's this giant rope like this and that I am actually pulling on it with all my might as I say, may your kingship come, may your will be done on the earth, in the land as it is in heaven. And so that's the purpose of uh, the rope here as a graphic. And so then I wanna say that the disciples prayer is both like and unlike the Jewish liturgy, the Jewish prayers of the second temple per, uh, period. We look at the Mornas Kaddish, opening words, magnified and sanctified, May God's great name be throughout the world which he has created according to his will. Look at that. Uh, name, will, 
May he establish his, there it is, kingdom in our lifetime and during our days and within the entire house of Israel speedily and soon and say, Amen. And when it comes to the disciples' prayer, it opens with the same twofold focus on the mourners' Kaddish, and you can compare the Amidah. May your name be sanctified, may your kingship come. The same twofold focus. And there's a writing from the first century known as the Didache, and a longer title for it besides the instruction would be the teaching of the 12 apostles or the teaching of the Lord through the 12 apostles to the nations. So in a, in a writing that has to do with handing down the way of the Lord to Gentiles who have different responsibilities before God, the Gentiles are instructed to pray the Lord's Prayer, that is the disciples' prayer, three times a day. And of course, this is presumably for them to follow the three times a day habit of Jewish prayer. And there's a whole course, an MSI course being recorded on the disciples prayer. And I would urge you to then take that course. Where we're going to fill in the details, you know, in a very uh, inordinate kind of way. Uh, for a sermon, we succinctly state what we need to say. So neither the Kaddish, the Amidah, nor Yeshua's prayer suits a complacent person satisfied with the treasures of this age. This is a prayer for the desperate, that is to say the broken, to whom Yeshua promises the blessings of the kingdom in Matthew 5, 3, who recognize that this world is not as it should be and that only God can set things straight. This is the prayer of those who know they must depend on God for their daily provision, who need their debts forgiven. We'll talk about that. Who need his strength to not fail in all the testing of the end times of this present evil age. And this is not the prayer of the complacent and self-satisfied, but of the humble, the lowly, the broken, the desperate. This is the prayer of those who have nowhere to turn but God. The unassuming of Matthew 5, 5, who will inherit the land, the earth. We use the hyphen, we explain it in detail in the course, because the promise was originally to Israel for the land. And even in rabbinic literature later, the whole earth as an inheritance was involved. So we say both. And of course, those who join Messiah uh, from the nations are now also subject to this wonderful inheritance. So Yeshua taught this prayer to his disciples as the mainstay. That is the most essential prayer for them to pray as what? As the new covenant, new creation, royal priesthood. Do we think of ourselves as the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests, or royal priesthood? all in the inaugural foretaste form as we anticipate and pray for the fullness? Is the disciples prayer our mainstay prayer? You know, one of the greatest books I read over the past year was Yeshua the Priest by Nicholas Perrin. It's in fact why I created the course on this topic and it's in part responsible for the birth of this sermon. It was life-changing. It'll change your life. I recommend it to us all. And it's the most Jewish explication of the Lord's Prayer and many other things that I've posted about in the Hannah Manna Post 
uh, that I've read in years. It's just wonderful. And Parent says, it's not enough to infer that the disciples' prayer was repeated early, far and wide. There must also be some, some significance in its having been regarded as a useful summary of the good news itself by the second century disciples of the apostles. The broadly held vision of the disciples' prayer as an all-encompassing prayer. Listen to this, a prayer both literally and figuratively to end all messianic prayers. And that's probably why it, doesn't, it did not have a, a benediction at the end in the original text, because it was meant to be the prayer that ended all messianic prayers. And that's to be traced to its first reception among the first Jewish disciples of Yeshua. So we're going to take a closer look at the disciples' prayer bit by bit. We're going to start with our Father who is in the heavens. And I'll say it with no embarrassment. I hope this blows your mind. So note that this prayer is to be the prayer of the community of the royal priesthood of Messiah followers, as the opening word, our Father, makes clear. However, further note that in all Jewish prayer, as Nassim Sherman has rightly emphasized, the individual's need is subsumed in the community's need, which is only ever and always to be shaped by God's will for his people. And this is made very clear by all that precedes the words, give us this day, give us. When it comes to calling God Father, first we observe how rare it was to address God as Father in the Tanakh, but how in the difficult period of the end times, both Jews and Gentiles in Messiah were specifically instructed by Messiah to cry out to God as Father when they pray. See, especially Matthew 6, 6 and 9. Second, we observe that the first context in which God is portrayed as Father is that of Israel as God's firstborn son in the event of the what? The Exodus. And this turns out to be the key to the biblical understanding of crying out to God as Father. Calling God Father has to do with calling on the only one who is able to rescue or deliver his firstborn son to serve him as that priesthood. We're going to see this in the passage. Hence, it involves an exodus out of disobedience and slavery into obedient sonship, daughtership, priestly service. God as Father allows the great salvation from slaves to sons and daughters. This is Exodus 4, 22 through 23a. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And then we see in Exodus 19, 1 through 6, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim. They came into the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness. Follow it. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if, if, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, what will happen then? You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, later called a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In the new covenant, we need to be those bringing this to fruition through our cooperation in that the original exodus became the pattern of rescue or deliverance that is salvation in israel's history whenever they disobeyed the end times kingdom of priests seeks the final or ultimate new exodus as envisioned in isaiah 40 through 66 when no further comfort will be needed because Yeshua the Messiah will reappear, the messianic banquet will take place, and no more foretaste of the kingdom of God and Messiah, full taste, face to face with God and Messiah. Yeshua addressed God as Father and profoundly demonstrated this to his disciples in his teaching and praying. See, especially Yochanan chapters 14 and 17. Yeshua is the consummate firstborn son of God, who in his priestly role, sadly too lost to too many of us in history, mediates the new covenant to those who are his brothers and sisters, that is fellow sons and daughters of God, and thus members of the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests, or royal priesthood. In your Shabbat afternoon reading, I commend to you Hebrews chapter 2, where you'll see this of Malkitzedek, the forever priest, Yeshua Messiah, after the order of Malkitzedek. And then see Romans 8 in particular, that even tells us that the whole creation is waiting and anticipating the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. That's why our prayer in pulling down the kingdom of heavens to earth is so important. And the other profound context, of course, of calling God Father is the inextricably linked Davidic kingship dimension. And remember, Davidic kingship involves prophet, priest, and king. They should never be separated. And the preeminent passage that communicates this is 2 Samuel 7, another reading assignment for your Shabbat afternoon. Moreover, it's only in the difficult period of the end times that those who are granted the inaugurated new covenant gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, are able to cry out, Abba, Father, by the Ruach, as devoted, obedient children facing persecution and oppression. See Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6. Yeshua himself modeled crying out to God as Abba Father for them when his whole being was grieved to the point of death just before his horrific death by crucifixion. See Mark 14, 32 through 36. He was the exemplary, the pattern to follow, devoted and obedient 
son of God. Abba then should not be understood as daddy, as commonly taught in popular theology, but as the father who can be trusted to rescue his devoted and obedient children when they cry out to him in their time of troubling distress. Abba encapsulates the Exodus narrative in crying out, Abba, Father, the early Messiah followers were reminding God as much as themselves of the eschatological end times inheritance that awaited them on the far side of their troubling distress. Classic word in in Greek, thlipsis, that translates the classic tribulation, that word. In each instance, the cry of a father is not a mere holding on for dear life, but a verbal commitment to remain faithful in light of one's Exodus-like calling and future inheritance. The same holds true for addressing God as father in the new covenant kingdom of priests. The identification of God as father and or the praying individual self-identification as the Lord's child has to do with deliverance from oppression. If it is precisely in his deliverance that the Lord is proven to be father, then it is precisely through faithful perseverance that the devoted prove themselves to be the Lord's children. The new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests, or royal priesthood is comprised of those who live at the intersection of the heavens and the earth. Our father, the one who's in the heavens. Oh, we live in the reality of the unseen realm and are focused on doing righteousness. What is rightly obligated in covenant relationship with God and Messiah? What is rightly obligated in all human relationships? And what is rightly obligated in all situations? And praying the kingdom of God in its fullness to the earth forever. You realize that's why we're reading the book of the same name, Unseen Realm, on Sunday nights. What a privilege to lead that ministry. What growth I am seeing in us and what reality we are beginning to see afresh and even more deeply. And that affects our here and now. That's not just information. That's formation. That's transformation. And as we lean into the unseen realm and then we come back here to uh, the nitty gritty of our here and now, we live differently than the rest of the world. And we bring hope and we bring perseverance and we bring the ability to wait on the day that he will reappear and we will see yod vav face to face and the kingdom of God and Messiah will come to earth forever in its fullness in its new Jerusalem. And we actually live in a way that in Peter's writing says expedites that very thing. So we in fact provide the world with a foretaste of the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. So long as we're in such the reality of it in its foretaste that we can't help every day, at least three times a day, beg for it to come down. And of course, Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. 
So think about that when you're praying to the one who is in the heavens. And then it's sanctified be your name. It is accurate to say that the disciples' prayer came from the same stream of Jewish prayer as the Kaddish and other prayers like the Amidah that link sanctification of God's name, God's will, and the bold asking for God's kingdom to come. However, it is equally accurate to assert, as Perrin does, that it is highly plausible that Yeshua was praying out the scriptures, and that Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28, was the source of the disciples' prayer. Oh, feel this, think this, appropriate this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my what? My holy name, which you have what? Profane, made common, not sanctified among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know I am Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, declares the Lord God. That's all we need to read to realize that when we're praying the Lord's Prayer and we're saying, let your name be sanctified, we're asking for the truth of Ezekiel 36 to materialize in our time as the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests. And maybe in your afternoon time, because we're not scheduled to say the Elenu today, look at the words of the Elenu, the standard thrice daily, three times a day closing prayer of the three times a day prayer. It keeps the day of the Lord before us. And when it comes to name and presence, it closes with Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord, that is yod vav will be king over all the earth in that day the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. No other false gods will ever be called on again. Talk about sanctifying his name. And all of this in, in the foretaste reality that we're in and in the prayers that we pray. Oh my goodness, the prayers that we pray. They keep before us the coming fullness. And then we live in a way that expedites it. May your kingship come, may your kingdom come, may your will be done as in heaven, also upon the earth, the land. This petition builds on the previous restoration petition and again makes it decidedly unlikely that Yeshua imagined a return to pre-exilic conditions. Instead, Yeshua was assuredly exhorting his followers to take up their positions in preparation for an anticipated unfolding of eschatological end times events. Please see the hidden manna post that explains what are the end times and why we have always been in the end times since Yeshua came. And there's a further end of the end coming when he reappears. As Perrin rightly observes, if the cry of father reflected the onset of troubling distress unleashed against the community of Messiah followers, in the form of persecution and oppression. And if the subsequent phrase, sanctified be your name, speaks to the reconsecration of the Lord's holy kingdom of priests precisely through that troubling distress, then let your kingship come, 
imagines the next step in the sequence when he will rend the heavens and come down. Inside the foretaste version of the kingdom of God now, the new covenant, new creation kingdom of priests is to pray down the fullness of the kingdom of God to earth forever. That final and ultimate and consummate new exodus will involve the fulfillment of the land promise as the fullness of the kingdom of God and Messiah on earth is clearly centered in Israel with its new Jerusalem, as we would say on the East Coast forever. In fact, Kena rightly contends that the kingdom of God belongs to those who contend for it in laboring beyond virtually all other commentators to explain the meaning of Matthew eleven twelve, the verse that says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That translation, that verse, Keener convincingly argues that in light of always seeking first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33a, the words often translated as violent and violence might better be translated forcible acquisition. He then observes that at least one Jewish tradition, Sifre Deuteronomy 49.2.1, a rabbinic writing, praised those who passionately pursued the Torah by saying that God counted it as if they had ascended to heaven and taken the Torah forcibly, which the tradition regards as greater than having taken it peaceably. In like manner, the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests are not passively waiting around for the kingdom to come to earth. In their prayer, it is as if they are ascending to heaven to bring it down to earth forever. Compare the Jewish rabbinic tradition regarding Jacob's staircase in Genesis 28, 12, as it pertains to prayer. And so I have a question. Is this our robust habit of daily prayer? Do we pray this petition like this daily, thrice daily? Shouldn't we? Let your will be done, the third petition. It also builds on the previous one and demonstrates the mindset and way of life of the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests. And again, as Kena rightly asserts, those who long for God's will on earth in the future live consistently with that longing in the present, working for God's righteousness and seeking his will here. Compare Matthew 6.33 and 26.39. Indeed, only those who bring forth the fruit of repentance, of turning around, of returning, showing themselves ready for the kingdom, dare genuinely pray for his kingdom to come. See Matthew 3, 2 and 8. And this is what is meant by the phrase, as in heaven, also upon earth. Look at Psalm 100, uh, 103, and notice uh, in those Psalms that God's will is being carried out in the heavens. And then give us each day our daily bread. As most commentators rightly point out, Notice that the God-centered your petitions precede and inform the us petitions. We would be wise to ruminate on this truth for the rest of our lives 
for the messianic impact it would have on our worldview and way of life. And given the fact that the end times are marked by troubling distress, I find it troublesome that many readers and scholars do not see the provision of bread here as a both and, referring to both the actual sustenance one needs to survive the troubling distress on a daily basis and the bread that either accompanies the long-for messianic banquet foretold in Isaiah 25, 6 and foreseen in Matthew 8, 11 through 12 and 22, 1 through 14. And all of this Matthew context has to do with the fact that this, this version of the disciples' prayer that we're working through in this Shabbat sermon is from Matthew. And or as Perrin further notes, the fresh outpouring of manna expected to accompany the rest in the Alam Haba, the world to come, based on the model of Exodus 16. And then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In rich dialogue with Joachim Jeremiah's discussion of the Aramaic and Greek wording of the Lord's Prayer, Perrin observes that the best understanding here is likely that the disciples can look forward to God's forgiveness because they have declared themselves before God and one another in a repeatedly performed speech act, that is to say a structured prayer, the disciples' prayer. They declared themselves a community committed to forgiving their enemies' wrongdoing. This assertion is convincing because the Jewish people would not have needed general instruction by their Messiah about forgiveness and how it works in the form of a daily prayer. Hence, with Perrin, I think the wrongdoings in view in the disciples' prayer, the debtor's debts, are not theoretical transgressions in the abstract and faraway future but rather the particular offenses inflicted by the movement's persecutors. In fact, Perrin goes so far as to say, as such, the prayer for eschatological forgiveness, which is in some ways already palpable in the present through Yeshua, was meant to engender, to bring forth the spiritual and psychological capacity to extend forgiveness to those who played Pharaoh to the Yeshua movement's Israel. That is to say, such forgiveness was directed to those creating the troubling distress for the community of Messiah followers. Such forgiveness would then be much like the forgiveness that Yeshua extended to those who crucified him. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. In Israelite history, sin was likened to a stain that must be cleansed. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool, Isaiah 118. But in later Jewish history, sin was likened to debt. And the more sins we commit, the deeper we go into debt. Anybody feeling the pain of that? Hence, Yeshua taught and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, Matthew 6, 12. And then 
probably really new learning for us. And let us not succumb to testing. The best of scholarship says no way in the world should the word peresmas be translated temptation here. That is a huge mistake in history. And we fix it here in the course that we're delivering on this in full at MSI. And again, Keener's work on this petition has it quite right. In this context, the person is praying precisely that the period of end times testing will not lead to failing. Testing with a view to bringing people to succumb was the business of the evil one. Just go to the temptation, <laughs> the testing in the wilderness passage uh, of Yeshua when he responds with Deuteronomy for all his answers. Go to the testing, not temptation. So testing with a view to bringing people to succumb was the business of the evil one in the very next petition. In fact, as he further rightly contends, Jewish teachers came to regard martyrdom or perseverance in dangerous tests as the ultimate way to do what? Sanctify God's name. Thus, he correctly goes on to conclude that if Matthew's first hearers, readers, wondered at all, whether or not lead us not into testing meant let us not succumb to testing, Matthew 26, 41 would have settled the matter, where again the word oftentimes translated temptation should be translated testing. Thus Perrin concludes, if this reading is correct, then Yeshua's point is just this. Those who intend to validate their status as children and priests before the Lord must do so by faithfully passing through the testing, perasmos, the divinely willed crucible of evil inspired persecution and oppression. But let us not succumb to testing, but rather rescue us from the evil one. In this context, the person is praying precisely that the period of end times testing will not lead to failure. Testing with a view to bringing people to succumb to failure was the business of the evil one, a characteristic title of Matthew for Hasatan. Scholars thus generally agree that this is a prayer that would bring one safely through testing rather than deliver one from experiencing it and compare these passages from Psalms, Isaiah, and Revelation. Praying the disciples' prayer in the end times as the new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests, or royal priesthood. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Shabbat afternoon reading for you. With all of this fresh understanding, our repeated emphasis is on actually praying the Lord's prayer in these end times. I concur with Perrin that this prayer was given by Yeshua the Messiah to his disciples in order that they might carry out their role as the inaugurated new covenant, new creation kingdom of priests. Perrin, like me, listen, is eager to see this end times, new covenant, new creation kingdom of priests re-instantiated. That is to say, represented by an actual instance in history again. Is that us? Will that be us? And that's the beautiful graphic from the course that features the word Haaretz by Michelle 
the Nasta CL, the number one Hebrew calligrapher in the world. And I close with just a word about thanksgiving as an essential element of prayer as taught in the scriptures, especially in this passage. Don't worry about one thing, any one thing, anything, but in every circumstance through general prayer and urgent plea prayer with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving perhaps for what God did for ancient Israel that in your remembrance brings you hope and perseverance because if he acted that way that long ago, he'll continue to act that way now. Or perhaps thanksgiving in remembrance of the ways God has acted in your own family and life. Or because it's always communal prayer, perhaps it's remembrance of ways God has acted in the history of our congregation, Beth Messiah, and its educational branch, Messianic Studies Institute. Like my prayer two Mondays ago for five minutes in which Yodhe Vafe made me know, I am God, I am in heaven, you are on earth, let your words be few. I only prayed five minutes and a donor called and donated $5,000 to the Messianic Studies Institute to kick off its beginning of its academic year. If we have this kind of prayer and we let our request be constantly known to God, because we're transparent before him, not because he doesn't know what they are. The shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding, will mount guard like a Roman battalion around our hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua, presumably to keep out any worry whatsoever. And I just close with these words of Philo, the Alexandrian Jewish uh, philosopher uh, who wrote this work called Concerning Noah's Work as a Planter. And uh, I've been told that when I found it, it is perhaps the most profound passage on the giving of thanks, thanksgiving in antiquity. And here it is. And Moses very appropriately says that the fruit of education is not only holy, but also praised. For every one of the virtues is a holy thing, but most especially is thanksgiving holy. But it is impossible to give thanksgiving to God in a genuine manner by those means which people in general think the only ones namely offerings and sacrifices. For the whole world could not be a temple worthy to be raised to God's honor, except by means of praises and songs. It is the most appropriate work of God to heap blessings and of created beings to show thanksgiving. Having learned therefore that there is only one employment possible, for us of all the things that seem to contribute to the honor of God, namely the display of thanksgiving, let us at all times and in all places study this with our voice, with useful writings, and never let us stop composing praise speeches and poems in order that the creator may be honored by every description of utterance which can be exhibited in either speaking or singing. Let us pray. So Avino Malkenu, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege of being those who are in the foretaste of the new covenant, new creation. We ask that you would open our eyes to who you've constituted us to be. May we be that new covenant, new creation, kingdom of priests, royal priesthood that not only lives in a way that brings honor to your name, but also prays in a way that would open the heavens and lead to your coming down 
to bring the fullness of your kingdom to earth in Messiah forever. And it says in his name that we ask this. Shabbat Shalom.